Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, my name is Shane Baldacchino, and this is episode 49 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And today with me is Dr. Peter Stansky. Hey, Shane. Hi, listeners. And it's always great to be back on the show. Um, how are things with you, Shane? I'm not too bad. I've uh, had a busy past week, Pete. It's uh, hardly been here. Been a struggle to kind of get a few things done, but having fun nonetheless. As always. But you know what? Um, same here. I've been uh, virtually traveling all over the place across APAC. So this is like India, Sydney, Singapore, um, using our very own uh, teleportation technology called AWS Chime, Shane. So if you haven't tried it, go check it out. It's a great way to uh, stay in touch with Teams. Yeah, and I think we discussed it a few episodes back and, you know, virtually free or maybe even free depending on your usage. So look, episode 49 of AWS Tech Chat, one more to the big 5.0. Boy, the show has come a long way from its humble beginnings from Sydney 2016. So episode 50 is fast approaching. A bit of a milestone. Listeners, what do you want us to do? Email us at awstechchat at amazon.com. How are you feeling about that, Pete? I feel like a like a proud parent, Shane. Uh, you know, the, the show started um, as uh, as you know some time ago, um, and I, I think I figured the math here. I think the show has actually got more tenure than you at AWS. It actually does. It started two to three months before I started here. Pretty impressive, and and still going strong. And guys, uh, we've been really enjoying your feedback recently. So uh, yeah, as uh, to Shane's point, let us know what you would like us to do or cover in episode fifty. Uh, we've been hearing you, and we are diving deeper into some of the uh, really really interesting tech domains um, that we bring on the show. Exactly. And speaking of diving deep, today we are in for a treat because we're going to dive deep on a few technologies we've released over the last year, maybe some recently in the last few months, and really why because this is Tech Chat. And in this episode, we're going to go pretty deep, probably deeper than most of the other sessions that we've covered in the past, because there are a few pieces of technology that fundamentally change the approach of how we wire up those more complex AWS account structures. And we're going to talk about some modern approaches that customers who, let's say, are maybe more advanced in their cloud journey are adopting. Wadding, Will Robinson, this is going to be a very, very deep dive on a whole bunch of There we go. Prepare your brain. And look, just to build the suspense here, I'm not going to tell you what they are right now. I'm going to really draw this out. But I'll give you a hint. We're going to talk mainly today about two features, both three-letter acronyms, listeners, or even Pete, can you guess? But instead, Pete, tell me about the news at the moment. About the news. Well, there's a few things happening, but I'm keen on this three-letter acronym, Shane. Um, could you give me a bit more of a clue? This could be anything. It could be anything, but no clues. And the sooner we get through the news, the sooner we'll all be told. So is this how you negotiate with your customers, by the way? <laughs> you sort of put a little teaser out there and drag them along. <laughs> what have you heard here, Pete? Look, I know I'm known to deliver some tactful, tough love when it makes sense. And just like now, this is my tough love. So look, we are trying hard to keep these episodes regular, Pete. So let's keep these announcements maybe to the end of the month of June. All right, cool. So let's do that. So um, summits, summits, summits. So we have another summit coming up in Shanghai in China on the 20th of June and also in the same area in Hong Kong, um, so in China, uh, on the 26th of June as well before moving on to Sao Paulo in Brazil, uh, which actually kicks off on the 27th of June, Shane. 
Yeah, and look, so other than summits, there are obviously events to tickle your fancy. We spoke about them in past episodes, so I'm not going to cover them here. See episode 48 to get an overview. But I will say, if you're naturally curious or inquisitive, pop AWS events into your favorite search engine, and there'll be something, no doubt, that will keep you interested. I'd be really surprised if you can't find something online that works for you. Yes, and look, uh, it does have updates. Uh, look, no more new regions, but as we said in the last episode, and we continue to uh, beavering away, uh, we're working on more and more things to get that are coming your way. Having said that, we still have the 12 more availability zones uh, and those four other regions uh, in the works at this point in time. So uh, let's just keep going now. That's, that's it for the news. Wow, that was quick. I think you really must want to know here. So I'm going to tell you. <laughs> the three-letter acronym, Shane. All right. So the first thing I want to talk today is about RAM or RAM. Now, this, is, this isn't the RAM in your computer, the random access memory we're talking about, right? This is something else that's more AWS-centric. I thought you'd say that. So you're right. It is not the RAM you're thinking of because you're right, RAM isn't new. So story time here, Tech Chat listeners, in the context of RAM or random access memory, it's been around since the late 60s with Intel's 1103 chip, which was the world's first available RAM chip. But this isn't a show about computing in general. It's a show about AWS. And I'm talking about RAM in the AWS context. And I think we've got too many acronyms. I mean, you think about it. I mean, three letter something, you know, ECS, EKS, you know, uh, yeah, way too many acronyms, Shane, especially in IT. You're telling me. All right, so here's a challenge for you, Pete. Maybe we'll save our customers here, but in the next internal session, let's see how far you can go inventing an acronym and putting it out there in internal meeting. See if people buy in. Let us know how you go in the next episode. Uh, uh, bonus points, guys. If you can come up with a really weird, strange, unusual acronym, uh, we'd love to hear about it. So uh, do let us know. Okay, so RAM in the context of AWS is Resource Access Manager. And put simply, is a secure and simple way to share resources across AWS accounts in your organization. So think about what I've just said here, and I'm going to repeat it. Share resources across accounts in your AWS organization. The first time I started looking at RAM, I had so many questions. You know, why would I want to use this? Why would I actually want to share resources, especially when we have DSLs like CloudFormation? Yeah, and look, when you think about it, you know, these are really good questions to ask because when you uh, look at the AWS platform, it is so comprehensive. You know, it's, it's a platform for builders and uh, we give you so many different levers to pull to be able to get to the outcome. And quite often, you know, our customers go, yeah, how can I do this? And we go, well, you can do this, this or that. Uh, give me more context. So uh, it always helps to get uh, the big picture first before sort of recommending uh, which lever we should be pulling upon. But when is it appropriate to pull the lever and what option does this lever give you? You know, so many questions here. Well, that's a $64,000 question, Shane. Which ones? So let's talk about that. Okay, so I think any good architect worth their grain of salt will want to understand our product offering and what capabilities that you know, a certain product provides and how that can be overlaid or mapped to solve a business problem at hand. So RAM, and I'm going to call it RAM uh, from now on, brings a lot of options for builders. You know, options to share transit gateways, subnets, AWS license manager configurations, and Amazon Route 53 resolver rules. So we're not going to have time to cover each of these today, Shane, but from a high-level perspective, uh, Transit Gateway really acts as a, as a hub that controls uh, network traffic flows amongst many of the VPCs that you may actually have set up. So, uh, you know, uh, 
in a new VPC, uh, you know, you create, can connect to a transit gateway, uh, and then it automatically is able to send packets um, between the transit gateway and your on-premises network or other VPCs. So when you've got uh, hundreds of uh, VPCs, uh, this is a great mechanism to actually simplify the uh, uh, the P2P meshing that most people would be setting up. Uh, the other service you mentioned before, the AWS License Manager, really makes it easy to manage uh, all of your licenses uh, in AWS uh, for on-premises software uh, from the various vendors like Microsoft, SAP, Oracle, IBM. Um, and it lets you basically um, customize licensing rules uh, that emulate the terms and conditions of your agreement with your actual vendors. So really, really useful. Uh, and uh, we've also got subnets, which we're going to spend some time on shortly, uh, but uh, also Amazon Write 53 resolver rules. So if you want to control how uh, your DNS lookups are being actually resolved uh, and decide uh, where the forwarding uh, of that request goes to, whether it goes to the AWS resolvers, uh, or perhaps yeah, we forward those requests uh, for domain resolution onto your own network. So uh, yeah, give you more control about how things can be done. So very, very useful. Yes. So look, AWS as a platform has changed a lot since I've been here, let alone you, Pete. You know, you're really old and I'm sure it has changed. <laughs> really? Uh, am I really that old? I think you tried to elude uh, to my time at, at Amazon because I'm, uh, I'm about to hit seven years. So uh, it's uh, it's been a long time. And like like, like medicine, you know, doctors prescribe, uh, you know, certain kind of medicine back in the old age, uh, stone age rather. Uh, and now we prescribe much more sophisticated, laser focused uh, medication. And in, for us, that's new tools uh, and other levers for the cloud users. And obviously, I was talking about tenure here, Pete. Obviously, I hope so. Right? I hope so. I hope yeah. so. I'll, I'll say that. So, look, the conversation about multi-account VPC peering to overcome, you know, non-transitive routing rules are, are almost a thing of the past today. And it's RAM that once again is shaking up many of these conversations. You know, it is the new medicine, really. So, let's talk through something pretty common: VPC peering. So, why do we have VPC peering, Pete? Well, you pair your VPCs, or as we call them, virtual private clouds together uh, when you want to access resources in other AWS accounts. Now, this can work quite well um, because you establish relationships between two different accounts, uh, and one account uh, initiates the actual peering request, and the other account actually accepts it. Um, and then once you've done that, uh, you can access the resources in each of the accounts. And quite often, uh, that might be different teams or different applications, uh, uh, all wanting to actually communicate with each other. Yeah, look, that sounds good, but in reality, there are a few challenges here. People's use of AWS has changed. I have customers with close to 200 AWS accounts now, and VPC mesh peering can often be thought as VPC mesh peering. And what I mean by this is when you have a sizable number of AWS accounts, peering VPCs together can cause a few headaches. Firstly, you know, you need to ensure you don't have overlapping CIDR blocks between your VPCs, so the network ranges. You, know, you need to do a bit of planning here. And Shay, what's a CIDR to put you in a spot? You've put me on the spot here. Ah, gosh, uh, classless interdomain routing, I believe. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, I think it's class. Yeah, I think it's classless internet domain routing. But anyway, close enough. Close enough. All right. I know what it does mean, though. So, secondly, though, it's pretty coarse. You know, you're peering an entire VPC and everything that goes with it. And lastly, you know, you need to maintain an understanding of the peering relationships. You know, what VPCs appeared with what. You know, thinking about your security boundaries, etc. All of these three points are a bit of a headache for one reason or another. And this is back to the advice part again. You know, these all served a purpose back then, but now there are better ways. So if we look at why we peer VPCs together, it's really to share resources. And RAM now just makes this process so much easier. 
almost all resources in your AWS account from Lambda, RDS, containers, services such as EMR, and maybe, of course, EC2, live in the context of subnets. With RAM, you can use shared subnets where you can place your resources into a shared subnet. So there are a few benefits of this, Pete. So firstly, less planning around network site arrangers. I'm not saying you don't need to plan, but often customers who have lots of site arrangers are either seldom used or in some cases they may even run out of IPs. And we no longer have that sledgehammer approach that peering was. You know, this is now more fine grain at the subnet level. You can still use security groups, but you don't peer the entire VPC range. Worth pointing out here in this scenario, whilst you can still use security groups, if you are using knuckles, they do become less effective. As because remember, they operate at the subnet level. And now you may be combining many different types of traffic together, meaning you need more ports to be open. So that's probably, I would say, one caveat of moving down this path. But Pete, I think the biggest advantage for some customers has to be the reduced overhead of managing complex accounts. Absolutely. And it's a much cleaner approach at scale, right? You mentioned, you know, customers having hundreds of accounts. We've also got, we've got thousands of accounts. So you can imagine the challenges that they're actually facing. So now you can place um, the subnets uh, that you want to share, uh, you know, across all of your resources in the um, in this model via RAM. So obviously you still need to plan around this as well. You don't just want to open this up. Uh, you know, you and hopefully you're not going to be using slash 24 address uh, ranges, but something more like slash 20s in each availability zone. And, uh, and that's probably more than enough uh, for your configurations. But certainly it's a very clean way of helping uh, people to actually, I guess, co-reside uh, in your VPCs. So some of you may actually remember that uh, there's a special feature in S3 uh, called Request a Pays Bucket Chain. Uh, and the idea is that um, a bucket owner generally pays for all Amazon S3 storage and data transfer costs associated with the bucket. So um, you can actually configure a bucket to be a Request a Pays Bucket. And what this means is that the... Uh, uh, the requester pays for all access to the buckets. All the request costs are actually incurred, but the owner actually still pays for the storage. So, uh, you know, this is not exactly the first. So we've had this around for quite a while. So this new RAM feature of being able to reuse um, uh, resources like subnets, uh, again, is a slightly different pivot on that idea that you can actually have an account uh, and have resources that somebody else is either using or consuming or paying for. Overall, Pete, I think this is a way cleaner approach. You know, using the mantra of KISS or keep it simple, stupid, I want to talk about a real example here. So often with VPC peering, I talk to people about peering either, you know, in a hub and spoke model um, or maybe even in a mesh. You know, it works, but if mm. you're trying to enforce a pattern of least privilege, and you should be, you know, this is hard because you are opening things up at the VPC level. But keeping up with what is peered and what is not peered is hard work. Some customers may have many accounts with many VPCs and the distinct business units maybe might peer their production VPCs together, effectively creating like a pseudo production network. This is actually quite tough as the number of accounts grow. So if you've got 100 or 1,000 AWS accounts, every time you maybe say add another account in, you may need to establish peering relationships to 100 or even 1,000 thousand plus other VPCs, you know, ouch. Indeed. And like when we were talking about this before the show, yeah, you know, the, the light bulb moment for me really was with RAM, you can just place the resource in the shared subnets. You know, you create that 
production network. There's no peering, no VP, VPC meshing or, or mess rather, as you call it before. You get this one logical subnet or subnets uh, for your instances, for your containers, for your Lambda functions, uh, your RDS databases. Um, so everything can actually coexist in, uh, in harmony. Uh, and for those of you who are, who are security conscious out there, because everyone uh, security is everyone's responsibility, including ours, uh, this gives you more fine-grained controls at the subnet level and not just a VPC. Yeah. So look, I know we've been talking about subnets quite a bit here, and that's the most common use case that I've seen in the field with RAM. But also to point out, as we mentioned, RAM brings more. There's transit gateways, license manager, and Route 53 resolver rules. Resolver rules we spoke about in past episode, which is a feature of Route 53 that enables bi-directional querying between on-premises and AWS over private connections. Really awesome stuff, a game changer for many environments. Well, with RAM, you can share your Route 53 resolver units. How good is that? You know, that is really, really cool, I think. So, Pete, how does one get started with RAM? Great question, Shane. I, I know, I'm, I'm full of them. So, please tell us, Pete. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's fight this. Let's get on, get on started with RAM. So, there are two paths you can really take, right? You can either share your resources or you can consume other resources. So on the sharing side, uh, if you would like to share resources within your organization or organizational units, then you must use the AWS RAM console or the CLI commands to enable sharing with the AWS organizations. By the way, remember, organizations help you control multiple accounts in your, in your business. So when you uh, uh, share resources with your organization, AWS RAM does not send invitations to the principal owner of the other account. Now, principals in your organizations get access to the shared resources without exchanging those invitations. So for those of you who VPC peered in the past, uh, you get an invitation you have to accept, and that's when it's accepted, you actually get to peer. In this context, uh, you don't have to worry about it. You're part of the AWS organization family, uh, you automatically get them once that rules, uh, once you've been uh, granted access. Now, so, however, in the scenarios where you are not using uh, organizations, you can still share resources with individual uh, AWS accounts in your organization. Uh, however, you do this in the case of the principal receiving the invitation, as I've just outlined for previously doing VPC peering, and you must accept uh, the uh, access uh, in order to be able to access those resources. Yeah, kind of the same process you'd follow if you're peering VPCs together, and I'll say in a traditional manner. Some considerations and call-outs on resource sharing here. So you can only share resources if you own it. So kind of obvious, and you can't share resources that have been shared with you. After you add an organization to a resource share, changes to the OU or organization affect the resource share. For example, if you add a new account to the organization, it's going to have access to those shared resources. You can't add the following resources to share as principles, so IAM users, IAM roles, or OUs, or organizations outside your organization in AWS organizations. So that was sharing, but we know life is give and take, so let's talk about take or consuming here. To start using a shared resource, it's the inverse of what Pete just mentioned. If you aren't using AWS organizations, you can respond to the resource share invitation. If you receive an invitation to join a resource share, you must accept it to gain access to the shared resources. Simple, right? And totally. Yeah. And if you're part of an organization in AWS organizations and sharing within your organization is enabled, principals in your organization are automatically granted access to the shared resources and do not receive these invitations. You know, it really is as simple as that. And look, uh, after you accept the invitation to join a, a shared resource, uh, you gain access to control a whole bunch of things. Um, 
But having said that, you know, uh, these actions do vary by resource type that is being consumed. And uh, the the, uh, the idea of one size fits all does not apply. So I highly recommend that you uh, spend a little bit a little bit of time specifically focusing on what RAM can do for each of the actual uh, services you're trying to share. Uh, so highly recommend you guys check out the RAM documentation for things like, you know, Route 53, Transit Gateway, PPC Sharing, and License Manager. Good one. Okay, so two quick questions here for you, Pete. How can I view resources that have been shared with my account? Uh, easy. You can view resources that have been shared uh, inside the RAM console or by actually using the RAM API. So use a CLI and the resources that have been shared with your account will literally appear as available resources either in the console on the web page uh, or a specific uh, list or describe APIs for those particular resource types. So, for example, if you were to use uh, the CLI for AWS uh, uh, Route 53, uh, you would be able to see uh, Deliverator rules. Yes, Deliverator is a real name. Uh, and it's an API called List Deliverator Rules API, uh, which will actually give you all of that information as to how you've configured your rules for delivery and forwarding of your uh, DNS requests. So all that stuff uh, basically should feel like it's a normal resource that you've got access to once you've been given access to it. Okay, next question. How can I know about changes to the resource shares? All right, so all of the calls to the RAM APIs are logged in AWS CloudTrail. And also, uh, in addition to that, we've also got CloudWatch events that are triggered whenever there are changes to the resource shares that you've actually modified and changed. Yeah, that's pretty cool, you know, showing lots of visibility here. So AWS RAM is available in all regions. And really, it is really worth looking into if you have multi-account structures that you need to wire up together. And I'd be heading down this path personally over more traditional approaches such as peering. So look into it. Yeah, look, totally go look into it. Go have a play with it even more uh, and just look into it and see uh, you know, some of the benefits you're going to get. And uh, do consider maybe going back and retweaking some of the ways uh, that you may have been uh, doing you know, sharing of VPCs and uh, resources across your uh, multiple accounts. Indeed. So Pete, we preach infrastructure as code. We say code is eating the world. The first time I wrote some CloudFormation, I felt empowered. Being an infrastructure guy at heart, writing who could write code, you know, it was pretty magical. Finally, I could marry both of my passions, my infrastructure and my code together. And what really won me over was the fact I could parameterize using nested cloud formation, which, you know, I could create templates for, say, production and development environments where I could pass in user input, make them nested. I could use, you know, like common elements, but, you know, have them nested so I can have common elements like networking. It was a step change in how we operated versus the hypervisor physical world. You know, via this DSL, I could build my entire AWS environment, define it as code, commit it to my repo. Does it get any better, I thought. You know, and I thought, hard to see how it could, right? And, you know, this was Shane of yesteryear, 2011. <laughs> well, just like, uh, you know, the example we gave about RAM, and that's only been, you know, uh, eight years ago, right? CloudFormation. Uh, and things have changed. The world has moved on and hopefully we have all moved on. And speaking of CloudFormation, you know, I actually, when I think back to somewhere around circa 2005, I came across this really obscure thing called, there was an XML for data center definitions, uh, whereby you could actually try to attempt to, uh, you know, visually draw and output XML to describe it, but there was nothing that would actually produce the data center for me back in those days. So, uh, you know, woohoo, you know, fast forward to AWS Cloud and um, we got CloudFormation. Yeah, look, we've all changed. I've changed, you've changed, the world has changed. I would say when CloudFormation made an entry in 2011, development skills, or let's say scripting skills across the world were probably less mainstream. 
Totally could not agree more, Shane. It was a huge paradigm shift for so many people. Um, and given it's uh, so prominent today, it's, it is worth talking about it on Tech Chat, uh, about a particular feature uh, launched uh, recently in August. Well, we launched it in 2018 called in the developer preview, which was the AWS Cloud Development Kit, or an acronym for it is called the CDK. Um, and I actually had a catch up with the, uh, the CDK team when they were first uh, pre-announcing it late last year. But from a high-level perspective, the um, AWS CDK is a software development framework to help you um, define AWS infrastructure and all the artifacts and output those via the CDK into cloud formation. So what that means is developers, you know, you're all out there, um, you can transition to NoOps a little bit quicker now by moving to focusing on improving your productivity by using the CDK uh, and operate at higher level essentially object-oriented software abstractions to define your AWS resources uh, via the CDK. And uh, this really improves your end-to-end development experience because uh, you get the power of a modern programming language, and you have, we have a number of languages that support this, to define your AWS infrastructure in a predictable and efficient manner uh, with you know things like if statements and whatever else um, to spit out cloud formation chains. It's totally cool. Yeah, it is. And it's not to say CloudFormation is bad in its native format, but you need to understand JSON or YAML and have a decent understanding of foundational concepts. I like to think of CDK as a cloud infrastructure compiler. It provides a set of high-level classes and libraries called constructs that abstract AWS cloud resources and encapsulate our best practices. Constructs can be snapped together into object-orientated CDK applications that precisely define your application infrastructure and take care of all the complex boilerplate logic. So when you run your CDK application, as I mentioned before, the output is compiled into CloudFormation templates, the assembler language for AWS cloud infrastructure. The template is ready for processing by CloudFormation provisioning engine and obviously then onto deploying your application or resources into an AWS account. So I think of CDK like how you would include a library or module in your code. So for the Python people out there, maybe it's kind of like Bodo 3 if you're using Python. Things like for loops, if statements, other functions, you know, in your familiar given language are now all available to really, I guess, take your cloud formation to the next level. Since CDK code is just code, existing IDE functionality such as, you know, inline documentation, refactoring tools, code navigation, unit testing, all work as expected. Yeah, so, look, so fire up your virtual uh, you know, whiteboard, guys. Uh, close your eyes for a second. And imagine if I write a bit of code like new ec2 dot vpc network bracket this comma quote my vpc close bracket semicolon right is uh, is a way of creating a vpc or creating an s3 bucket by saying new s3 dot bucket this bucket name and then you pass in a parameter uh, encryption s3 bucket KMS managed, right? Uh, all these things will be able to help you create an S3 bucket. So uh, it's a it's a very nice way of actually abstracting some of those uh, co- concepts. And I think it, Shane, to be honest, it really brings us that one step closer towards uh, infrastructure as code. You can create a new VPC in one line, a new S3 bucket with encryption and KMS managed, like really, really simple. It's really cool. So Pete, CDK, while still in preview, is available today in JavaScript, TypeScript, Python, Java, and for both of us, .NET. So plenty of languages to cover most developers out there. So that was the theory. How do we get started here? And the first thing I would do is type in AWS CDK into your favorite search engine, which will land you on our GitHub repo, which is at aws labs forward slash aws hyphen CDK. 
And uh, you know, I'm super excited about the uh, the .NET support because uh, when they uh, launched it, um, originally it didn't have .NET support. So I'm pleased to say it's it's actually there. So uh, I'm going to go check it out some more. Now to get back to the topic of uh, installation, well, you can you can either um, install manually from a signed zip file or via your npm, so Node Package Manager, uh, which does require Node.js eight or greater. So via NPM, you just do a NPM, you know, install global and say AWS dash CDK. Um, and uh, basically you can kick off your project, initialize it. Uh, and from the command line tools, once it's actually been installed, you got access to a command called the CDK command. And you can either use CDK deploy to deploy your apps into your AWS account. You can use CDK synthesize or synth. Uh, and what this will do is it'll create the actual template for your application. So it'll actually run that um, your application and output CloudFormation. Uh, you can also do CDK diff, which will s- simply compare your app with the actual deployed stack so you know what's different um, before you start to push it out. So uh, three different functions that let you step through, uh, you know, uh, are really useful. Uh, and uh, all these commands are incredibly useful because they give you the ability to actually, you know, compare, create, and then deploy your CloudFormation templates uh, via the CDK chain. So CDK is a software development framework that helps you in your programming language of choice. As long as it is today, JavaScript, TypeScript, Python, Java, and .NET, you know, you're in luck. But really, we're writing code here, so you need to ensure you have the same code hygiene as you would when developing applications. So if that being said, you know, here are my pro tips here. You really want to validate as early as possible in your code. You want to catch those errors and prevent code compiling because you know you want to have built-in safety guarantees into your code. This not only catches things early, but you want to do this because it is good practice if you're building something complex such as, I don't know, drpetswidgets.com. You know, there is one thing I know about CloudFormation. And what would that be, Shane? Um, that is magic. Well, it is magic, but I also do know it takes time. And depending on what you're instantiating, if you're using custom resources, maybe CFN init, CFN signals, sometimes CloudFormation can take tens of minutes, maybe even an hour to error or timeout. You know, that's a long feedback loop. It could be costly in some cases, but really it's something your code base should stop and prevent early on. So things to be aware. You may not be able to usefully inspect all strings. Any strings passed into your construct may contain special markers that represent values that will only be known at deployment time. For example, the ARN of a resource that will be created during deployment. Those stringified tokens, you will not be able to validate against using a regular expression. And the next one is when accepting other resources as parameters, Declare your property as a resource. This makes snapping objects together feel natural to consumers and allows you to query or modify the incoming resources as well. For example, the latter is particularly useful if something about IAM permissions need to be set. So if you want to get your hands dirty with the CDK, guys, um, there are a few ways you can do this. So first of all, uh, from GitHub repo, Go and check out AWS Labs slash AWS CDK. Uh, you can see the tutorials, the developer guide, and there are plenty of examples uh, in most programming languages from, uh, you know, for things like step functions, uh, Lambda walkthroughs, uh, S3, and VPC operations. Uh, you can also ask questions on Stack Overflow and tag it with AWS CDK, and we'll uh, help you guys out. Uh, you can also open a support ticket with AWS support, as uh, probably you already may have done in the past. Or if you're super hip and cool, you can come and join the AWS CDK community on Gitter, Shane. Isn't is, that cool? Is anyone listening here asking, what is Gitter? You know, it's something yeah, I have to... Hand up. 
Put your hand up if you're on the bus or in a car. What is Gitter? I've got my <laughs> hand up. Know. It's something I had to look up. Obviously, I'm not cool enough to hang with the cool kids here, but if you're not familiar with Gitter, Gitter is an open source instant messaging and chat room system for developers and users of GitHub repos. So users can chat in chat rooms, access private chat rooms for repositories that they have access to by logging into Gitter via GitHub. I feel cooler already now, Pete. Woo, go for it, Shane. Okay, and lastly, often in order to really grasp a technology or a principle, you need to use it. So head on over to HTTPS cdkworkshop.com. That's one word. It's a domain owned and run by us, Amazon. It's a workshop-based learning and allows you to follow along and in no time you'll be able to create a new CDK application, define your app's infrastructure using the AWS Construct Library, even deploy your CDK apps to your AWS accounts and define your own reusable constructs. Cool. Okay, so Pete, changing topics here. Earlier this year, I received an email. I received lots of emails, but I received an email that I you know, opened rather than leaving unread talking about a Lambda function I had in my account becoming end of life. And it's probably worth talking about. Do you know what I'm referring to here? Yes, of course I do, Shane. And uh, so Node.js has uh, released a new version uh, and it's in Lambda, uh, so version 10. Uh, but I bet the email you got was uh, more than just having a Lambda function that's going to end of life with Node 6, I suspect. You're not reading my emails, are you, Pete? But yes, it was to do with that. So my Lambda functions for my elevator demos I built a while ago, I built on Node.js 6, and I got told they're going to be upgraded to Node.js 10. So Pete, can you tell our listeners a bit more about this? Sure, Shane. So let's start on the deprecation of version 6 first. So Node.js 6X, or Boron as it's referred to, um, was uh, a long-term stable release, uh, and it's been out since the fall of 2016. It has now gone end of life uh, as of the uh, 30th of April this year, so 2019, if you are listening to the show in the future. Uh, and Node.js 6 is no longer included in Node.js releases. So what that means is that uh, most software vendors uh, generally upgrade the software. And uh, in this case, they've uh, released more, uh, you know, addressed more critical bugs. They've uh, they fixed security fixes uh, and released a whole tra- a stack of uh, patches uh, and many, many other important updates. Um, so for cloud security, this is a, you know, a very high uh, priority for AWS, hence why we have now moved to Node.js 10. Uh, but I guess, you know, the sad news uh, for a lot of folks is that they have to move because uh, the, the actual Lambda runtime uh, requires that move uh, into the newer version of JS version 10. Now, if you look at the, the benefits, uh, for example, the benchmarking uh, group for Node.js, you know, basically it's called out that, you know, with the move to Node.js, you know, operations per second are nearly two times higher on Node 10 versus Node 6. So you get a bit of performance. Uh, latency has decreased by up to 65% on Node.js 10 versus 6, which is even better. Uh, and also the footprint um, after load is about 35% lower in the newer version of Node runtime than its older version 6, uh, which means you get, you get a better performance uh, during cold start chain. Excellent. And look, while benchmarks don't always reflect real-world results, the trend is clear from what you're telling me here, Pete, that performance is increasing in each new Node.js release. So your mileage may vary, so we would encourage you to benchmark your Lambda functions post any script engine upgrade. And also with Lambda, as memory is tied to computational power and cost, this may be a logical time to retune your Lambda functions. No point using so many resources to execute your function when this upgrade may actually allow you to move to a smaller runtime environment. You know, save some money here. If you don't need 
a, you know, a big, you know, two gig Lambda runtime environment, maybe you might be able to slim back to 1024 or 512, et cetera. So Node.js, or as its code name is called Dubnium, brings a few new features to the table. Node.js is the first release line to upgrade OpenSSL to version 1.1.0, so pretty important here. I think probably to me more important is native support for HTTP2, which as we know, HTTP2 offers massive performance improvements over HTTP1, so latency is minimized due to a reduced protocol overhead and adds support for request prioritization and server push. Node.js 10 introduces new JavaScript language capabilities. So the virtual whiteboard is fully full today, but worth researching to see what's available and how you can leverage this in your code base. You know, probably the same thing as, you know, another development language releasing a new version, adding new features. Take a look, you know, be naturally curious, understand what the differences are. Maybe you might be able to refactor something, et cetera, even eke out more performance. So as Node.js 6 has gone end of life, your functions would have been upgraded to version 10, but this again is a good reminder to instrument monitoring and hooks into your application to ensure compatibility with a new runtime. Node.js 10x runtime is available in all regions where Lambda is available today. So Pete, that is it for the show today. Super excited about episode 50. Maybe they'll double the budget of this show. You know, you still double zero, you still get zero, right? Are you serious or are you just joking here? <laughs> well, we, we do have a very frugal budget. But listen, as I was uh, listening to, to the update on um, end of life, um, I was just thinking someone's got to come up with a service that creates all these cool, funky, unusual, hard to pronounce names like Dubnium, you know, uh, Boron, uh, and a whole bunch of other things. So if you guys know of a, of a service that's out there that actually creates these uh, wacky names, uh, let us know. Let us know. So today we dove pretty deep, deeper than most sessions, and I hope it was a thought-provoking episode. We started the show with AWS RAM, that's Resource Access Manager. Put simply, is a simple and secure way to share resources across AWS accounts in your AWS organization. So perhaps take a think if your VPC peering or maybe DNS resolution strategy is right for you. Could RAM help improve the status quo? Take a look. And we also talked about the Cloud Development Kit or the AWS CDK, as it's also known, as a software development framework to help you define AWS infrastructure uh, artifacts and output that into cloud formation in uh, a number of different programming languages. You know, another tool that will hopefully help you with your move to NoOps and, uh, you know, help you have a greater focus on improving your developer productivity. So CDK offers this, you know, super duper high level object-oriented or abstraction, if you like, to define AWS resources and, uh, you know, um, make you feel like, you know, you, you're spinning up infrastructure just like you're creating objects. Mm. And lastly, out with the old and in with the new. Node.js 6 is end of life for Lambda and we announce the arrival of Node.js 10, touting significant performance and functionality improvements. Thanks for your time here today, Pete. Episode 50 beckons. It is. So, guys, do let us know. Uh, we'd love to get your feedback. Um, yeah, big 5-0. Not old, just tenured, right? Just tenured. We'll go with that. <laughs> Listeners, join us again for another fun-filled adventure in the world of AWS Cloud. We'd like to hear what you like, perhaps what you don't like. Keep the feedback coming and don't be shy. Send us an email to awstechchat at amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building. Bye for now. Bye. Signing off, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends. 
tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.